With Chime Secure Credit Card, you can start improving your credit scores with everyday purchases and regular on-time payments. Get started at Chime.com slash build. The Chime Credit Builder Visa Credit Card is issued by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA. Members FDIC. Results may vary. See Chime.com for details. Terms and conditions apply. Go to Chime.com slash disclosures for details. So, Tori Neumeyer, as an economic policy reporter at The Post, I know that you've been covering this incredibly closely. And I'm wondering if we can just start by having you tell me where we should start this story. Is a good question. But I think maybe the right place to start is a month ago when this thing all fell apart. Embattled cryptocurrency exchange FTX has filed for bankruptcy. It comes after a week-long saga that began with a run on FTX, triggering what could be one of the biggest meltdowns in the industry's history. In the beginning of November, the crypto industry took a massive hit. One of its giants, a company called FTX, collapsed. And this news left people like me with a lot of questions. Mainly, what even is FTX? Who is this nerdy, moppy-haired man at the center of all this? And how did he get himself into so much trouble? Um, I didn't ever uh, try to commit fraud on anyone. I, I was shocked by what happened this month. That is Sam Bankman-Fried, the 30-year-old founder and disgraced CEO of FTX. He spoke at the New York Times DealBook conference last week, which is kind of surprising because he could be facing intense legal trouble. What are your lawyers telling you right now? Uh, Are are they suggesting this is a good idea for you to be speaking? uh, No, they are very much not. Um, uh, And uh, I mean, you know, the classic advice, right, don't say anything. Uh, you know, recede into a hole. Uh, And it's not who I am. I don't see what good is accomplished by me just sitting locked, uh, you you know, in a room pretending the outside world doesn't exist. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, December 6th. Today, I'm talking with economic policy reporter Tori Neumeyer to demystify the FTX collapse. Tori's going to pull back the curtain on Sam Bankman-Fried, and we'll explain how this guy went from being a tech CEO to a major Washington lobbyist, and then how it all came crashing down around him. So, Tori, what exactly is FTX? So FTX is a trading exchange. It's a website where people go on and uh, open accounts and they deposit uh, currency, you know, you like traditional money, dollars, and they open a, a trading account with this thing and they trade their dollars in for crypto. And typically people think about Bitcoin, but there are all these other kinds of coins beyond Bitcoin that people trade in. And it it really operates like a casino. Um, I mean, people are buying these coins on the hopes that they go up. FTX was popular because it was headquartered offshore in the Bahamas, which allowed them to escape regulatory scrutiny from the U.S. and also allowed them to offer trades in all sorts of exotic um, instruments so people could make more leveraged bets and you know, take riskier bets than what is allowed from people operating onshore in the United States. That's. I feel like I have so many questions about that. Like, is that legal to operate this whole company offshore? And 
do the kinds of financial things that you couldn't do here in the U.S. But but I also want to talk about this guy, Sam Bankman-Fried. What's he like? He's 30 years old. He grew up in the Bay Area. Both of his parents were professors at Stanford Law, which becomes funny later when you understand that the dad uh, focused in part on corporate governance and the mom focused in part on ethics, which are two things that the company was revealed to be lacking in, um, to understate it wildly. Um, but he grew up, obviously, in a, you know, in a very intellectual environment. He ended up going to MIT for college, where he studied physics and math, and then ended up heading to Wall Street after college to a little investment firm called Jane Street, where he learned how to trade. And while he was there, the cryptocurrency industry sort of took off. And he noticed that there were opportunities in the infancy of this industry to make certain kinds of trades that were basically sure bets. And so he left the company um, in 2017 to start his own firm called Alameda Research. And this was a hedge fund. And the founding purpose of the hedge fund was just to take advantage of differences in Bitcoin in different countries. And so he had a team of people that he was sending out around the world to buy and sell Bitcoin and take advantage of this price differential and pocketing huge amounts of money very quickly. He was making millions and millions of dollars. Interesting. And that became the kind of seed money for uh, FTX, the, the trading platform that he went on to found that really rocketed his wealth and prestige into a completely different you know, level. So when I've seen footage of Sam Bankman-Fried in the past, I get this impression that he's kind of awkward and also really not like your typical finance executive. So he is a self-described nerd who has this uh, very distinctive mop of curly dark hair and uh, presented himself really as a slob. Uh, I mean, he would show up um, for conferences with heads of state in a what became his kind of signature uniform of uh, an FTX branded T-shirt and cargo shorts and running shoes, and yeah, I mean he took the stage with Tony Blair and Bill Clinton in the Bahamas at an FTX conference wearing this. He would show up to very important meetings with investors wearing this. This was his calling card. Like he just rolled off of the beanbag that he slept in in his office <laughs> oh, uh, for whatever meeting he happened to be taking. But also, isn't um, and, this like tech bro 101 of like, oh, you it's it's a flex to show up to important meetings with your T-shirt or hoodie or whatever? I feel like we've seen that from a lo- uh, some other tech company founders as well. Yeah, I absolutely think it's tech bro 101. It was a kind of a flex. And it was also, I think, part of an image that he was actively cultivating to make himself seem like this really quirky um, guy who was kind of all about living humbly because he was so focused on his mission. And his mission, I think this is important to understand as far as the myth-making that he he did around himself. It was meant to be twofold. So he was in crypto, he said, to make a lot of money, but it wasn't an end in itself, whereas crypto has gotten kind of stereotyped as... Um, this playground for people who get way too rich way too quick and then spend it on yachts and Lambos and stuff. He said he was really focused on making as much money as he could so that he could give all of it away. And he had this philosophy that he said he ascribed to 
that is coming into vogue in Silicon Valley called effective altruism. And the idea is you're applying quantitative rigor to big problems in the world. So as you're giving money away, you're maximizing the benefit of each dollar that you give. The way that sort of like I think about things both from an effective altruism perspective and from, you know, running company and, and everything else is like, you know, how much good can you do per, per dollar? How much bang for the buck? How much, you know, per minute that you spend? Like, what are the ways that you can maximize the amount of impact that you're having? And and so the, the sweet spot that, that, that I try and find is like, where are places where there's an issue that is really pivotal for the future of the world? and where I also think, like, I might be able to move the needle. But it was also very much a part of his presentation that he was, you know, not some rapacious capitalist who was just trying to hoard as much wealth as he could. He was really in this to do good. And I think that helped a lot in Washington as he came here and was starting to circulate and advocate for a regulatory framework for his for crypto that would benefit him and his company. So, Tori, have you ever talked to Sam Bankman-Fried or, or interviewed him? Yeah, so I sat down with him in the Jefferson Hotel in downtown Washington. It's, you know, maybe a half mile north of the White House. And we were uh, in a little room off the lobby for this conversation. You seem to be everywhere. Yep. It sounds like you're in Washington a lot. Yep. Can you characterize either in absolute terms or like as a yep. chair of... Um, how much time you're devoting to your yep. job, where you're also obviously yep. overoccupied? How you're, what, how much you're involved here? I mean, it's double-digit percents of my time, certainly, and like, you know, I'm spending upwards of third of my time on on things in DC right now. Um, that's been true for the last eight months or so, um, and you know, I think a lot of that's a, we're at a critical point right now. I spent about an hour with him in October, when he was still riding high and spending a lot of time in Washington trying to get this bill passed that would start to regulate the industry. And he thought it was going to benefit FTX and was kind of single-mindedly forcing it into a position where he was hoping he'd be able to get it passed by the end of the year. Wait, that that actually kind of confuses me because you say that he wanted regulation from Congress, even though he's operating this company in the Bahamas specifically because there are things that he's doing that aren't legal in the U.S. So, like, what was he trying to achieve here? Well, I would say in retrospect, the the red flags that you just identified should have been, you know, smacking policymakers in Washington in the face. And they should have been saying, wait a second, why are we letting a guy who runs an offshore exchange because he's avoiding regulation name his terms, essentially, for an entire industry and really an entire category of law hmm. um, as it regards this emerging you know, asset class. It's crazy. Um, but I think you know, it's a testament both to the effectiveness of his lobbying presentation and the money he was throwing around. He was throwing around tens of millions of dollars in campaign contributions. He spent um, about $40 million that we know about and that made him the second biggest Democratic donor in the country. Not just for crypto, not just for finance, but period. He was second only behind George Soros as a source of campaign funds for Democrats in this midterm election cycle. 
He identified himself as left-leaning or a Democrat and gave a lot of money to Democrats. He had a partner, and this executive was a Republican and gave tens of millions of dollars to Republicans. So they were spreading their bets, so to speak. I mean, they were giving tens of millions of dollars to both sides. And as a result, he, Sam Bankman-Fried, when he came to Washington, which he was doing with increasing frequency as he was trying to get this bill passed— was able to get meetings with top Democrats and with top Republicans, including congressional leadership. And I think policymakers just got, you know, sort of, they got dollar signs in their eyes and they were thinking, here's a guy who's got seemingly limitless ability to spend on politics and a, and a willingness to do it. And it, um, it really clouded the consideration around what he was doing here. It's very hard to operate in the United States. And, you know, this is true from a compliance perspective for large institutional players who um, feel nervous interfacing with a system that doesn't have clear regulatory guidelines. Um, and it also means that there's a lot of uh, liquidity and products that just aren't a part of the U.S. ecosystem at all right now in crypto. Um, but to, to your question about why is a guy who is seeming to do everything he could to avoid regulation leading the charge in Washington to establish it. You know, having good regulation would create clear rules um, of engagement um, so that people could feel com more comfortable interfacing with the ecosystem and operating it. So it sounds like for a while, this company FTX was very successful, very lucrative for Sam Bankman-Fried, for the people who were investing with him. Then what changed? When did things start to go wrong for this company? So that is something that we're still trying to understand because what we've learned in the month since FTX collapsed is this company that was behaving as if it was the most trusted player in this you know new wild west. In fact, it had basically no corporate governance standards. There was no board. Uh, it's not clear whether there was even a chief financial officer. Um, they didn't know even necessarily who was employed there. I mean, they were approving wild expenses with emojis and in, in, in Slack channels. I mean, there was no kind of order or system behind this front. Hmm. Um, the guy who's been appointed CEO to handle the bankruptcy was also the guy who helped liquidate Enron. And he has said, this is the worst failure of corporate governance that he has ever seen. Wow. That um, is just shocking, the lack of financial controls behind the curtain. So piecing together exactly what went wrong here is probably going to take months. But what we think happened is there was a market collapse that really started in May, and it kind of cascaded through the crypto industry. And there was all these interconnections between big players. So when one fell, it started this kind of chain reaction. And and when you say a market collapse, basically that the the value of cryptocurrency, um, like Bitcoin and other types of currency, that 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 value went down, right? Yes. So we didn't know that FTX was in nearly as bad shape as it was really until a month ago. But it turns out that the events that look like they knocked the company sideways started six months ago, when one high profile project that wasn't affiliated with FTX collapsed. And it started this chain reaction of contagion through the crypto economy. 
and a couple of other cryptocurrency platforms collapsed. A hedge fund that was heavily invested in crypto also collapsed, and there were a bunch of high-profile bankruptcies. FTX tried to ride to the rescue. Sam Bankman-Fried said, we've got so much money, we're going to be injecting hundreds of millions of dollars into propping up these companies and saving them and turning the entire industry around. And it looked like they were in a strong enough position to do that until a month ago when this former friend turned rival of Sam Bankman-Fried's announced that he was going to be dumping this asset that it turns out was very important to propping up FTX and some of the debts that it had taken on. At its peak, FTX was worth $32 billion, but its value has now plummeted. And his decision to do that and his announcement that he was doing it is what sparked the bank run. Uh, Because a bunch of other people who had money on FTX thought to themselves, well, if this guy is dumping this huge share in uh, this token that he says is propping up the whole enterprise, then the entire thing might be going wobbly and I need to get my money off. And it prompted a bank run. And so the company faced billions of dollars of redemption requests, people trying to get their money out in just a couple of days. Sources told Reuters that FTX was scrambling to raise about $9.4 billion from investors and rivals as the exchange sought to save itself from a flurry of customer withdrawals. And FTX was forced to say, we don't have the money to answer all of these requests and ended up declaring bankruptcy a few days later. And so what happened to all the people whose money was invested with FTX? So I should try to make this a little bit clearer. What happened, so when the market collapse started six months ago, it looks like the hedge fund that Sam Bankman-Fried started back in 2017 called Alameda Research that has been associated with the trading platform FTX ever since its founding made a bunch of bad bets. And instead of just being honest about those losses and accounting for them, it now seems that the company took customer deposits from the trading platform and moved them over to the hedge fund Hmm. to try to plug the losses that the hedge fund had suffered. I I don't know a lot about running companies like this, but it sounds like doing that would be a big no-no. That is very, very bad. (laughs) Uh, It's fraud. Um, the, The company was very clear in its terms of service that when you deposit your money with FTX, that money is supposed to be your money and it's supposed to sit there. It is not for FTX to then take, lend out to this affiliated hedge fund and make very risky bets with. Hmm. That is not what customers thought was happening to their funds. And in fact, up until really the day before uh, the company went under, when there were questions circulating on Twitter about this and people were starting to panic and rushing to FTX to get their money off of the platform, Sam Bankman-Fried went out publicly and said, all of our customer assets are backed one-to-one. We have everything that you've deposited with us. Your deposits are safe. And now, of course, as the company's entered bankruptcy and we've started to kind of peel the onion of what exactly happened here, we've learned that is absolutely not the case. And there are maybe a million customers who are not going to get their money back or will get you know, sort of pennies, pennies on the dollar for what they de- deposited. A million people? Yes. It was one of the biggest 
crypto exchanges in the world. Wow. So they had, you know, there were a lot of people who were exposed here. And a lot of them are regular kind of everyday mom and pop investors who are just trying to get in on this juggernaut and make some extra money that way. And then there were also institutional investors. So, you know, big venture capital firms, but then also some public pension plans, you know, that were betting the retirements of workers on the success of this company. Oof, that's awful. It is awful. I mean, there's a lot of pain here. And, um, you know, none of this really, none of this should have happened, but sorting out exactly what went wrong and how is a question for both regulators and investigators in the United States and, and worldwide, and also the people brought in to try to manage the bankruptcy and see if they can scrape together, you know, as much as they can, and then make people who have lost money here a little bit more whole. Yeah, what's the plan here going forward? I mean, is there a way to get back some of that money that people lost with these investments? And, and what, what's being done to hold this company accountable? So, I, I mean, I really think we are in the very early stages of this story in terms of both accountability for executives and then providing some kind of, if not satisfaction, then at least answers for customers and investors in the company. We know that federal prosecutors in Manhattan and and the Justice Department are investigating this alongside uh, investigators at the SEC and the CFTC, all working in parallel to try to piece together what happened here. Then there are state regulators who are also looking at this. And it was really an international company, so there are going to be investigations unfolding around the world uh, at the same time. And then there's a bankruptcy process that is playing out now in court, both in the Bahamas and also in the United States, to try to understand what does this company have left, what can be sold, and then, you know, in what order are people meant to be paid back. Hmm. And what has Sam Bankman-Fried said about all this and the fact that it appears that he lost a lot of people's money? He has said a lot. Uh, And he is still talking, which is an interesting thing for a guy in his uh, situation because he has lawyers, no doubt, as he has told us, telling him, uh, shut up. You're not helping yourself. You've got serious potential criminal liability here. And going around and making public statements about what you knew when is only uh, endangering. He's only endangering himself by, by doing that. It's not entirely clear what his strategy is. It seems like he is talking to um, anybody who shows up at his door in the Bahamas to talk to him. A lot of people look at you and see Bernie Madoff. Yeah. I mean, I don't think that's who I am at, at all, but I understand why they're saying that. People lost money. He's given interviews to the Wall Street Journal, uh, Deal Book, Good Morning America. He's going on Twitter spaces. And what, what does he say in these, in these interviews, especially if it's a time when he's not supposed to be talking? It's, I think for most people, most people who are tuning in to try to understand what happened here who are not, you know, crypto experts or experts in finance, it sounds like a lot of gobbledygook. And that is, I think, very much the point that he is saying, well, I made some mistakes, essentially, and our accounting was clearly insufficient. I didn't do a good enough job managing risk because I was distracted. And, you know, I wish I could do this over again. And I feel terribly about this. 
And the most important thing is helping people who got hurt and trying to repair some of the damage here. But you're ultimately responsible. And ultimately, absolutely. Like, I, look, I should have been on top of this. And I feel really, really bad and regretful that I wasn't. And a lot of people got hurt. And that, that's on me. The issue is what he isn't saying, which is what he knew when about the, the fraud that seems to be at the center of this thing, which is billions of customer money that was supposed to be safely deposited at FTX somehow found its way over to the hedge fund and then disappeared. Hmm. He owned 90% of the hedge fund. FTX, the trading platform, was also his. He ran that. Is it possible that a movement of money this massive from one thing to the other happened without him knowing about it? That that was just, you know, there was some accountant somewhere who missed that? It's, It's a question, obviously, ultimately for investigators and then potentially prosecutors. But he is sidestepping that or presenting an alternate narrative where he would have had you thought, you know, months ago that he was a boy genius who was going to solve all the world's problems Hmm. by accumulating wealth really quickly. Now he's just a confused kid who was, you know, in over his head. After the break, I talk with Tori about why the FTX collapse blindsided so many people, even if it shouldn't have been that surprising. We'll be right back. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. So, Tori, everything that you're describing, I I get that it is a huge tragedy for all the people who invested their money in this company. But it's hard for me to believe that this is all that shocking, right? That this, like, 30-year-old who is, you know, like, shows up to meetings in T-shirts and um, approves gigantic expenses with with emojis and slack, you know, the idea that that person is not the most responsible steward of people's money just is not that surprising to me. So I'm wondering, like, what has been the reaction to all this? Or has it kind of put some brakes on cryptocurrency as like this end-all, be-all moneymaker and and all the like fervor and excitement behind it? So a few things. I think, first of all, you're, you're, again, absolutely right in retrospect. There were a lot of red flags here that should have been capturing the attention, not just of regulators in Washington who should certainly know better, um, but also you would think people, regular, everyday investors who were putting, in many cases, too much of their money onto the platform in the hopes that they would get rich too. Um, But I think it's, especially as far as the investors are concerned, it's important to remember FTX was spending even bigger amounts of money than it was spending in Washington on a ad campaign, on this marketing blitz to establish itself as the safe and reliable partner for you as you went into crypto. Hmm. And this meant that they 
Um, they signed a deal with the Miami Heat to rename the stadium, you know, the FTX Arena. And uh, they had a marketing deal with Major League Baseball where if you watched any game this year, you would have seen an umpire you know, behind home plate with an FTX badge on their uniforms. Um, they were they had recruited the stable of super popular celebrity spokespeople from Steph Curry to Tom Brady and Giselle and Larry David, who appeared in a Super Bowl ad. It's a safe and easy way to get into crypto. Yeah, I don't think so. And I'm never wrong about this stuff. Never. The point of the ad was really, you don't need to understand this just to give us your money because you're just going to end up making more money. So, you know, get in now, but you don't even need to really understand what yeah. this is all about. I mean, this completely squares with, honestly, even my memory of the Super Bowl, right? That I was just shocked by how many cryptocurrency commercials there were. And, and it didn't help me understand anything about cryptocurrency, but it just feels like there is this this constant message that is coming um, around the country for people saying, if you want to make money, this is the way to do it. You can make a lot of money really quickly. And the details aren't really that important. Yeah. Well, I think the events of the last month have given the lie to both halves of that statement. You know, it's clear um, that you do need to know something about it and you aren't going to necessarily make a lot of money. The bubble has really collapsed over the last six months. And you've seen that in from asset prices. You know, Bitcoin is now down 75% from where it was a year ago. But I think really more importantly, as far as the public understanding of this industry, this high profile collapse, this is really, it's still a young industry. It's over a decade old, but this is the worst disaster that the industry has ever seen. And I think part of that is because not just the scale of it, but because of FTX's success in presenting itself publicly as a brand that you can trust. And it was operating, you know, in the most stark, you know, the starkly opposite way. It was, there was nothing about this that you could trust. And all of those things are going to conspire to make for much leaner times for this industry. Hmm. And it's, you know, it's not clear what shape it takes after this. Yeah, I'm curious, especially from the the perspective of of customers or consumers, the people who are watching these Super Bowl ads and saying like, oh, this might be a good way to invest my money. Is that starting to change? Like, have these headlines started to have an impact on people's interest in participating in this, like, Wild West investment market? Yes, dramatically. And I think maybe the easiest way of saying this is Coinbase, which is the biggest U.S.-based rival to FTX. It went public a year ago. At its height, it was valued at $100 billion. Now it's valued at $10 billion. It is valued at, it is a tenth of what it was valued at. Um, And that is a reflection of investors understanding that the interest from retail investors has, you know, all but dried up. And they're not bringing on new people to the platform People are not that are already there. In many cases, have stopped trading or just holding on to what they've got. They're not looking to acquire more. But the entire idea that regular investors were going to get into this and help drive an expansion of this industry, I think, um, is largely taking a back seat now. And is this having an effect on other parts of the economy? I mean, the fact that you have this one market that has crashed over the last six months does, does that are there 
repercussions for that that affect people who have not invested in crypto? So I think the good news here is that the answer to that is really no. Hmm. Um, This industry does not have meaningful connections with the broader finance industry, its connections to traditional banking infrastructure is is so minimal that there, the contagion effect does not spread beyond crypto itself into the wider economy, which is obviously good news for taxpayers that might be called on to backstop a chain reaction that was spilling out of crypto into other more critical parts of the economy. And why is it that uh, the crypto market is so isolated from the rest of the economy. I mean, I think, like, I'm imagining the the housing crisis, right? That, like, just because you don't own a home doesn't mean that uh, the crash of the housing market doesn't affect you. And so so why isn't the same thing happening with cryptocurrency? Well, I think there are a couple of things here. One is crypto really is pretty small, even as compared to the rest of the financial industry. So U.S. capital markets are $100 trillion. Crypto is less than a trillion. So it's less than a percent of the wider financial system. But I think the other reason why this is happening is banking regulators in Washington have actually been pretty careful about not letting crypto and traditional banking wires cross. And over the last year plus, you've seen banks ask for permission in Washington to try to get into crypto markets. You've seen crypto players ask for permission to get into traditional banking activities. And on both sides, banking regulators who sit in the middle have said basically no. And that has really kept these two systems separate from each other and you know, to the benefit of, I think, most Americans that there's not you know, a contagion effect now. You see spilling out of crypto into the wider financial system. So then what's going to happen next? What are the things that you're um, looking forward to or the questions that you're asking for how this is all going to play out going forward? Well, we are very focused on the bankruptcy itself and trying to understand what exactly happened with this company. Because just like everybody else, I think we have a lot more questions than answers right now about exactly what happened here. But we're also interested in the implications for the wider industry itself. And what is the response from Washington going to be? And a big question for us is, do regulators actually follow through and start to create some rules that make this much less of a Wild West environment? Or do they determine largely that because the industry seems to be collapsing on its own, that the problem is sort of taking care of itself. Uh, If investors want to continue to dabble here, they do so at their own risk, but they're not going to come in and kind of try to bring the industry under traditional, you know, regulatory scrutiny. Tori, thank you so much for explaining this. Thanks for having me. Tori Newmeyer is an economic policy reporter for The Post. Eliza Dennis produced this episode. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Sean Carter and edited by Rena Flores. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 
The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking, when we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen.